From the pages of the Blizzard, the Football Quarterly, we bring you the Blizzard Podcast, a weekly look back through the Blizzard archives where we bring you some of our favourite articles to have appeared in the magazine since we began back in 2011. In episode 12, we bring you an extract from Erbstein, The Triumph and Tragedy of Football's Forgotten Pioneer by Dominic Bliss, published by Blizzard Books in 2014. For those that don't know, Erno Egri Erbstein was one of the greatest coaches there has ever been, a pioneering tactician and supreme man-manager who created Il Grande Torino, the team that dominated Italian football in the years immediately after the Second World War. His was an extraordinary life that was characterised by courage and resourcefulness in the face of adversity. Erbstein was part of the great Jewish coaching tradition developed in the coffee houses of Budapest, and after playing in Hungary, Italy and the USA, he moved to Bari to embark on a coaching career that soon became noted for its innovativeness. That he and his family survived the Holocaust was a matter of astonishing good fortune, but just four years after the end of the war, Erbstein was killed with his team in the Superga air crash. This episode features extracts from chapters 10 and 11, Hidden and the Fortunate Few, which take place in Budapest in 1944. Paul A. Levine, a Budapest Holocaust historian, wrote, Tragically, the years of horror which constitute the Holocaust were not witnessed to the advent of a messiah who saved the Jewish people from their powerful, almost omnipotent Nazi persecutors. There were, however, some men and women who did choose to try to save some lives, and to ameliorate at least some of the mayhem and killing. It was with a heavy heart and no little anxiety that Marta Erbstein discovered she would not be returning to the Calvinist mission school. Following the German occupation, the mere suggestion of Jews attending school became unthinkable, and the strong-willed Miss Jenny, who had previously refused to adhere to the anti-Semitic laws, was confronted by an SS squad who offered her a simple choice – return to Britain or face the authorities. Marta later discovered that her headmistress had steadfastly refused to be forced out of her school and was imprisoned for her stubbornness. She never heard of her again. In the coming weeks, however, Marta would realise that her exclusion from school was the least of her worries, as Budapest became a hunting ground for fierce anti-Semites, looking to de their city. From the moment they arrived in Budapest, the Gestapo and a considerable band of Hungarian collaborators began to make their presence felt in the Jewish communities. By 1944, the SS had learned from their experiences in the rest of Nazi-occupied Europe, and the urgency with which they set about their work in Hungary was terrifying. Almost immediately, it was decreed that Jews would wear the yellow star, and in provinces a roundup of the Jewish population was ordered as the Hungarian Holocaust began. With the support of local functionaries and gendarmes, the SS were able to ghettoize almost the entire Jewish population of Hungary within two months, and to begin deporting them to concentration camps. Having invaded the country in mid-March, the German authorities then oversaw the deportation of almost half a million Jews, primarily to Auschwitz-Birkenau, by early July. This was the height of the Nazi genocide, as they streamlined their deportation and execution processes with chilling efficiency. More than 400,000 people, old men, women and children, crammed onto fewer than 150 trains, were deported to Poland, where they would be unloaded onto a ramp and sorted into those who could work and those who would best serve the Nazi cause by dying immediately. The latter group were then moved onto the gas chambers especially set up to dispose of them in the most convenient way for the brutalised troops leading the operation. At one stage, 12,000 people were being transported from Hungary to Auschwitz in this way every day. Among their number were the Jews of Erno Erbstein's hometown, Nagivarad, where a prominent and long-standing Jewish community numbered 30,000, one-third of the local population. 
They were crammed into a hastily assigned ghetto in the poor district that could never have been expected to cope with such numbers, while 8,000 more Jews were rounded up from surrounding towns and villages and packed into a second ghetto that was not so much a residential area as a roofless pen. The conditions they were left in while they awaited deportation caused countless deaths, many of them suicides, and the bodies were left to rot in the open, exacerbating the sense of dread among the remaining residents. Only 2,000 local Jews returned at the war's conclusion, and today just a few hundred make up the Jewish population of the town. The story was the same for the Jewish communities in towns and villages throughout provincial Hungary, while those in Budapest, it was decided, would be dealt with last. This logistical decision ended up saving the lives of hundreds of thousands, because on July the 6th, the country's regent, Miklos Horty, called for a suspension to the deportations before the ghettos in the capital had been emptied. The order indicated that a degree of autonomy was retained by the Hungarian leadership following the German invasion, and also that international pressure and considerations of post-war reprisals were now important factors in Horty's decision-making process. With the Germans embattled on two fronts, there were simply not enough troops available to them for a full-scale occupation of Hungary, and, in order to prevent their former allies surrendering to their enemies, it was deemed prudent to allow Horty and his government to continue to run the country, albeit with heavy German influence. Horty, however, had a history of anti-Semitic behaviour going back to the sweeping counter-revolution of 1919, during which he led a nationalist army across the country, killing communists and Jews with indiscriminate force. So it seems unlikely that his conscience was the lone consideration behind this decision to suspend deportations in July 1944, and it is fair to assume he would have been extremely aware of the light in which his actions would be viewed by the victors in any post-war trials or settlements. At this stage of the war, it was no secret to the wider world that Hungary's Jews were being deported at an alarming rate, and several influential figures looked to intervene, pressurising Horty to call a halt to the activity going on under his command. Pope Pius XII, President Roosevelt and King Gustav of neutral Sweden all contacted Horty before he announced that deportations had been suspended, and it would appear their overtures had a decisive impact on the regent, whose subsequent order brought Budapest Jews valuable time. As the net closed in on Budapest's Jewish population, there were few options open to would-be escapees, even for a man of Erbstein's considerable resourcefulness. But treatment of Jews could also be rife with inconsistency, and there were some places, even in the darkest months of the Budapest Holocaust, where shelter could be found with the right connections. Among the hilly parkland in the villa district of historical Buda, the unoccupied Catalin convent had been transformed into a war effort plant. Here, under the supervision of the kindly Catholic priest Father Paul Klinder and a courageous female director, Gitta Malash, uniforms were being produced on behalf of the war ministry. Situated on the leafy Budakeshki Utka, in a quiet garden next to the Janos Hegi forest, the factory was in a serene part of town, although the women working hard on the production line were not able to share the calm of their immediate surroundings. Instead, they huddled close at night, hoping not to hear the rumble of approaching military transport, for they were all there for the same reason. The aim of Klinder's operation was to protect as many Jewish women as possible from potential deportation by giving them work that was vital to the Hungarian war effort and, crucially, carried out on extraterritorial Vatican property. For these reasons they hoped not to be interfered with, but they also knew that their fascist foes were not known for adhering to international law. When Malash arrived to take charge as commander of the production effort in June 1944, she was shocked at what she found. Mattresses, cots and whatever the inhabitants have been able to save of their possessions are piled everywhere, from the cellar to the attic, she recorded. As if that weren't enough, 
More and more new refugees are arriving to squeeze themselves into the last tiny cracks of space. This tragic, totally disorganised mass accumulation threatens to endanger the entire operation, whose key to success will be keeping secret the fact that these women are of Jewish origin. Among the fortunate few to be stowed away in this Vatican enclave were Yolan, Susanna and Marta Erbstein. They had been informed of Father Klinder's factory by the girl's well-respected dance teacher, Valeria Dienes, who had close connections to the papal nunciature in Budapest, and counted Susanna among her star pupils. Dienes secured a place on the workforce for her young dance prodigy, who then appealed to Klinder on behalf of her mother and her 13-year-old sister, despite the fact that children under the age of 14 were forbidden to work. Unwilling to break up families, the priest gave Yolan a job as a cook and accepted Marta into his care, when it was agreed that she and five other children would be kept away from any authorities, hidden twice, as Marta put it. A factory producing uniforms for the very forces they were undermining. This was an operation shrouded in duplicity. Malash had applied for the voluntary position as director of operations in an attempt to save two close Jewish friends, whom she immediately added to the list of workers upon her appointment. She had succeeded in getting the job on account of her father's former high-ranking military office and, in a situation as perilous as this, Malash and Klinder's acts of subversion were nothing short of heroic. A handful of officials higher up the chain at the war ministry were also in on the act, but they were not prepared to risk their own careers by making public the true purpose of the factory. Consequently, the workforce initially approached Malash with trepidation, as she explained in her book Talking with Angels. During my inspection rounds, the women observed me with fear and mistrust because, as I later learn, a rumour has been circulating that a strict and uncompromising commander has been appointed by the war ministry. I decide to take advantage of their fear of the evil commander and to introduce at least a provisional structure of order. A wooden shed stands in the garden, and I select this to be my office. Malash might have believed that her disguise as the stern forewoman was a success, but it seems that her true intentions shone through as Marta explained to me that a kind lady had overseen the operation that saved her from the ghettos of downtown Pest. Susanna, meanwhile, went to work alongside her mother, who was taken on as a cook, and around 70 other women who quickly had to learn how to sew to a professional standard in the knowledge that their secret hiding place could only last as long as their work remained useful. We had to work eight hours every day, and every week we had to make I don't know how many uniforms, Susanna recalled. There was a big garden surrounding it, and it was all closed. There was a military presence all the time, so we could not go out. We were prisoners somehow. But it was very good for us to be in a protected place, and this priest, Father Klinder, felt that this was his mission, like Schindler, something like that. With the more experienced seamstresses teaching the others how to use the sewing machines, a spirit of camaraderie soon built up in the workshop, and the supervisors became known as the Jolly Jokers. Once the working day was over, however, the women and girls had time to talk and to ponder their situation. Fear for their own lives was always present, but they were also concerned for their families and for the men in their lives, news of whom reached them only occasionally from the outside. This usually happened when a relative from the ghetto was able to find the time and the wherewithal to make a telephone call to the villa. One day, Susanna was told there was a call for them. When she rushed to the receiver, she was overjoyed to hear her father's voice on the other end of the line. Erno had been through hell to get to a telephone. After his wife and daughters had been taken in by Father Klinder, he had reached his lowest ebb, racking his brain for a plan and realising that his only option was to report to a Jewish labour camp, as all men of working age were required to do by law. It is impossible to imagine how difficult it was for him to accept this harsh reality, but he had to do more than that. He actively had to hand himself in to his persecutors, 
literally to walk towards his own humiliation. A man who was always led by an idea, on this occasion was led by obligation. It looked as though the maverick coach with all the answers was all played out. The walk from his empty home to the labour camp was not optional. If he had refused to enrol in a labour brigade, Erno would have become a fugitive from execution. As he made his way into the camp, it seemed that the only way to survive was to call upon his physical, mental and spiritual strength in the hope that it would be enough to keep him sane and fit until the approaching Red Army made the breakthrough that might release them from captivity. An athletic man, he was immediately identified as a useful body by the Hungarian gendarmes who had been ordered to run the camp and attached to a workforce charged with laying railroads, a Sisyphean task in a city facing constant air raids on its supply lines and gruelling enough to break many of his fellow prisoners. However, as he reported for his first work duty in the camp, Erbstein could not believe what he saw. From his place in the line of solemn, almost broken men, he was faced with a ghost from the past, a flashback to thirty years earlier, when he had been an officer in the Habsburg army. Standing in front of him at the head of the line of new inmates was the man who had been Sergeant Erbstein's orderly during the First World War. The pair had not seen each other since 1919 after going their separate ways following those heady days of war and revolution, but here, in the summer of 1944, on his first day as a prisoner in a Jewish labour camp, the ex-officer came face to face with his former servant, who announced himself as capo of the workforce to which Erno had been assigned. Sergeant Erbstein had always been good to his men, and the situation the two of them found themselves in did nothing to stem the emotion of the occasion. Over the weeks and months that followed, Erbstein rekindled his one-time orderly's trust in him. The capo, whose name sadly neither Susanna nor Marta could recall, took Erno away from his workforce on several occasions, announcing that he needed an extra body to help with some construction work in the city. Having led his former boss from the watchful eyes of the gendarmes running the camp and his fellow inmates, he escorted him to a public telephone so that he could call the workshop where his wife and daughters were housed. On those occasions where such an operation seemed too risky, the capo would phone the workshop himself and pass on Erno's messages. Thanks to a chance meeting, the communication lines among the Erbstein family were open again. On the 15th of October 1944, the atmosphere on the streets of Budapest changed. A clumsy and premature attempt by Horty's government to announce a peace settlement with the Soviet Union had proved to be his undoing, as the furious German government immediately stepped in to remove him from the leadership and install the fascist Arrow Cross as the ruling party in Hungary, with the fiercely anti-Semitic Ferenc Selassie at the helm. It was the worst possible scenario for the city's Jewish population, and for several nights after Selassie's appointment, Emboldened Nihilus thugs took to intimidating the women inside the Catalan convent by marching up and down the road outside, shouting and firing their guns into the air. They were led by the Catholic priest and former monk Father Andras Kuhn, who had returned to Hungary in 1943 in order to join the Arrow Cross. This man of the cloth was known to keep a basement under his headquarters, where he and his followers tortured and killed hundreds of Jews in secret. With word spreading that he led his Jew hunts wearing his cassock, with a gun holster on his hip and arrow cross insignia on his upper arm, Kun's presence in the region struck fear into those women under the protection of his nemesis, Father Klinder. Eventually, the power-drunk Nailas boys decided that taunting these virtually defenceless Jewish women was no longer enough for them. They broke down the workshop door and rounded up all the women inside the convent at gunpoint. You cannot imagine those people. They were monsters, Susanna recalled. There was a commander of the whole thing, a military commander, and they took us all in a room where we were waiting for whatever they decided to do. They took us and said, Give us the keys and whatever you have in your rooms. Of course everyone had their most valuable things with them, and so first they took all those valuables from us. 
As it was Sunday, it was the only day when we could receive telephone calls and maybe visits from our relatives. And they decided, as some kind of joke for them, that when some of us were called to the telephone they would tell us, tell the person to come here because there is a party, and don't dare let them understand that there is anything different here. The Nihilists clearly hoped to tempt more Jews to the convent so they might increase the number of victims from their raid. That Sunday, Erno's friend called the factory to tell the girls that their father was unable to leave the camp to speak to them in person. However, he was completely disarmed when Susanna came to the phone and immediately began to speak in a high-pitched voice about a party that evening at the villa. He listened confusedly while she explained, in uncharacteristically expressive tones, that everyone was invited, himself, her father and any of their Jewish friends who could be smuggled to the villa district that night. What Erno's capo did not know was that Susanna was being held at gunpoint by a Nihilist mob, who were telling her what to say. Meanwhile, the gunman beside her did not know that, intuitively, Susanna had hatched a plan to speak in this strange hysterical voice in the hope that her father's friend would realise there was something amiss. There were these people saying, Don't dare give a sign. Say they must come here to the party, she explained, imitating the nagging voice of the aggressors. So suddenly I had this, I don't know, it's not like I made a long reflection about it, but some instinctive thing, that when I talk to him, I'll change my voice. You can hear that my voice is low. Well, I started to talk like this, she explained excitedly, switching to an almost childish tone. And I was saying, oh, you should come here, there is a nice party, please come. He said back to me, you think I should come? Maybe you mean your father should come. I replied, ah, yes, come all of you, come here, it's so nice. Well, after I'd talked with this gentleman, I went back into the crowd with all the others, and some time later they called me to the telephone again. It was my father. Again, the same situation. Those men menacing me and saying what I told you before. Of course, with my father, I also used my voice like before. But in this time, in the middle, I said, calmly and in my own deeper voice, Ayuto. They did not notice that in adopting this squeaky voice in all of this, there was Ayuto, because we used to talk Italian with my father. Anyway, he said, okay, I understand. Stay quiet. In the meantime, Susanna was waiting with the rest of the workforce in the convent, surrounded by brutes with guns. After she had spoken to her father on the telephone, the girls had remained at the mercy of their captors for several hours while they waited for any unwitting invitees to their party to arrive. When the Nailas grew bored of waiting, they forced their victims to line up in columns and march them out of the villa. Yolan, Susanna and Marta filed into the courtyard as all of the women from the Catalan convent were led into the night, towards an uncertain destination. We knew that we were going to death because it was so evident, Susanna recalled. It was dark and we didn't know where they wanted to take us. In those months in Budapest, Jews were often rounded up on so-called death marches and forced to travel on foot, at gunpoint, into Axis territory, unsheltered from the cold, until the vast majority of them simply gave up and were left to die by the roadside. Others were taken to the train station to be deported to concentration camps. In the same period in which the convent was stormed, hundreds of Jews were led to the banks of the Danube in groups, tied together in pairs back to back and shot into the river to drown or die from their wounds. Such cruelty became part of the everyday fabric of life in those final months of the Hungarian Holocaust. Thomas Veres, the photographer on the staff of Swedish diplomat Raoul Wallenberg, later recalled the moment when he and his employer were too late to help the inhabitants of one house in the Pest ghetto in late 1944. We got the call that the whole house was taken, he recalled in an interview in 1989. The whole house was empty except one guy sitting at the desk. Wallenberg told me, I was his interpreter, Ask him where the people are from the house. And the guy said to me, poker-faced, They are in the Danube, swimming. So, Wallenberg said, ask him why. 
he said, because they were dirty Jews. Knowing about these dark practices and fearing the worst, the women from Father Klinder's workshop were forced on a harrowing march, until they came to a prolonged halt on a dark road, when a vehicle pulled up next to them and signalled to the men in charge to stop. A conversation went on out of earshot of the women, at the end of which they were ordered to return along the route they had just taken. Confused, they suspected a cruel game was being played on them. We were so exhausted, we were saying it would be good if they finished it instead of going on with this torture, Susanna said. We thought maybe they'd put a bomb in the villa, that they wanted us all together there and that was how they chose to finish the thing. So we entered the villa and, after a certain time, Father Klinder arrived and spoke to us. This time, God wanted to listen to your prayers, he said. Father Klinder may have thanked God for the safe return of the 72 women in his care, but the Almighty was not the only one to heed the cries for help from the Catalan convent that day in November 1944. After he put down the receiver following the coded plea for help from his eldest daughter, Erno Erbstein asked his friend, the capo, to help him leave the camp, using a spurious work detail as a cover story. In town, Erbstein made a desperate phone call to Susanna's well-connected dance teacher, Valeria Dienes. He urged her to put him through to her friends at the papal nunciature. Angelo Rotta, the papal nuncio in Budapest, was one of the senior figures in a group of neutral foreign diplomats who made great efforts to protect Jews in the city. He did his best to keep tabs on situations in which the church might have been able to use its power to help potential victims of anti-Semitic legislation. To this end, Paul Klinder's workshop had purposefully been set up on Vatican territory. During Rotter's visits to the convent with another young member of the nunciature, Gennaro Verolino, he had been shown around the site by Susanna Egri, who had been keen to impress. Speaking to them in their mother tongue, she discussed the condition and spirit of her fellow inmates, as well as her upbringing in Catholic Italy. It seems she made quite an impression on the esteemed visitors, because, when her father managed to get his desperate message through to Rotter, the nuncio quickly responded, using smart diplomacy to throw senior members of the Hungarian government into doubt about their actions, war crimes, on extraterritorial land. He remembered this young girl who had been speaking Italian to him, Susanna told me. He remembered, and he immediately called the Minister of the Interior. He said, there will be a scandal if you touch the place, which is under the protection of the Vatican. Given the turbulent atmosphere in Budapest at the time, it is little surprise that the neutrality of the Vatican land had been breached by the enthusiastic rank-and-file Nihilus troops, who had little knowledge of or interest in the laws governing international enclaves in their city. But the senior Hungarian officials, whose names were likely to appear in diplomatic reports, could still act. These men were concerned about the danger any illegal acts of civil violence could do to their reputations at this stage in a war that they were certain to lose. Their lives could be spared by reports citing favourable treatment of Jewish prisoners, and the neutral diplomats who had remained in the city knew this. Several ambassadors from Switzerland, Spain, Portugal, the Vatican and Sweden influenced the decision-making of prominent Hungarian ministers and officers, reminding them that their acts would later be closely examined in the cold light of post-war reckoning. They were not always successful, of course, but their cumulative actions contributed to the survival of tens of thousands of Jews. As well as regularly meeting with the Hungarian government ministers to lobby them, one popular strategy was to hint that Shalassi's government may be given diplomatic recognition if certain agreements could be reached on the treatment of Jews, the neutral legations also provided some Jews with protective documentation. After all, while the actions of a roaming Nihilus foot soldier could not necessarily be predicted, many troops, particularly officers, would stop short of harming Jews holding paperwork that stated they were under Swedish or Swiss protection, for example. On July the 29th, 1944, SS Brigadefuhrer Edmund Wessenmayer 
who was keen to see Budapest's Jewish population deported to concentration camps, telegraphed the German foreign minister, Joachim von Ribbentrop, expressing his exasperation at the measures being taken by neutral bureaucrats to rescue Jewish lives. One name in particular has become synonymous with the rescue efforts of neutral diplomats in Budapest, Raoul Wallenberg. When I visited the city in December 2012, I was struck by the solemnity and the peaceful beauty of the Raoul Wallenberg Memorial Garden in the grounds of the great Dohani Synagogue and the memorial of the Hungarian Jewish martyrs, Imre Varga's metal sculpture of a weeping willow. Each of the leaves on the tree is delicately inscribed with the name of a person or family killed during the Hungarian Holocaust, an overwhelming representation of loss on such a large scale. Beyond the shimmering sculpture lies a red marble memorial stone, bearing the names of 240 non-Jews who made efforts to thwart the Holocaust, headed by Wallenberg, the Tylish Swedish diplomat. The names listed include Rotter and Verolino, the representatives of the Vatican who sought to protect the Erbstein girls in their workshop in the Catalan convent. It was young Verolino, sent by the ageing nuncio, who interrupted the deportation of Father Klinder's Jewish workforce on that cold night in November. He was the man whose car had sped past Yolan, Susanna and Marta, carrying an order from a senior government minister to return the women to their workplace. Rotter's diplomatic threats had worked. It seems that the minister's wife, a devout Catholic, had been mortified by the prospect of a breakdown in relations between Hungary and the church, and had urged her husband to take action to prevent this impending scandal. And so, with the papal nuncio in one ear and his wife in the other, the minister had been forced to act, handing his order to Verolino to convey to the officer in charge of the operation. Hurrying along the road after them, the Monsignor arrived just in time to prevent more than 70 Jewish women from being killed or deported that night. Before their capture, the workforce of the Catalan convent had not simply been huddled together hoping for the best. After hearing the intimidating shouts of the Nayilas troops, who had taken to shooting their guns into the air outside the convent, some of the women had decided to make preparations for an escape. Two weeks before they were rounded up and marched out of the villa, Gita Malash had written a premonitory entry in her diary. So as to be prepared for a possible invasion, I always assign one of our workers to hide in the bushes and keep vigilant watch over our front gate, she noted. We also prepare some escape holes through the fence around the garden and cover them with branches and leaves, hoping, of course, that they will never be needed. The alarm had not gone up in time for anyone to escape when the Nayilas had burst into the courtyard and arrested them at the beginning of November, but upon their return to the villa, shaken and nervous, the vast majority of the women decided that they were no longer safe there, and they formulated an escape plan. The main entrance to the villa, where the troops had forced their way in, was utsuitable for their flight, as it led onto Budakeshiutka, the main thoroughfare from which their tormentors had been shouting intimidating slogans in the weeks before. A side road which snaked around to the rear of the building surrounded two other sides of the convent, and, while an opening had been made in the fence here, it was also considered to be too exposed. Instead, they looked to the remaining side where a fence separated the workshop garden from that of their only neighbours. Beyond this neighbouring garden lay the vast Janosch Hege forest, where the women would stand a chance of vanishing into the darkness and making good their escape. There was, however, a rather large problem with this plan. The property next door housed an SS regiment. That was an extract from Erbstein, The Triumph and Tragedy of Football's Forgotten Pioneer by Dominic Bliss, published by Blizzard Books in 2014. The book is available in both print and digital editions from theblizzard.co.uk, alongside our other Blizzard book, Johnny Cook, The Impossible Job, a comic novel by Ian McIntosh. Both books are also available on the Kindle and Google Play stores, as well as from bookshops nationwide. 
Don't forget you can subscribe to the Blizzard Podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher.com, Pocket Casts, and pretty much anywhere that you get your audio content. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about these podcasts, you can email us, podcast at theblizzard.co.uk, or find us on Twitter at blizzard, B-L-Z-Z-R-D.